0: Pretty interesting analogy for modern-day Christianity, isn't it? Um, Hey, if you're new to the church, uh, really, really glad you're here. I'm really glad you're here today. If you're a non-believer in here, you're here on a great day, because I'm going to kind of hammer on Christians, so you're welcome. Uh, So, (laughs) uh, no, not that bad, not that bad. Um, That was maybe a little too far. We've been working through the book of James, and before I get into uh, just kind of a recap of, of, of where we are right now, um, I want to give a preface to today's sermon, and I've done this kind of preface before, but if you're new or if you've never heard this, I think it's important that I do this every once in a while. Um, my goal and, and my calling from God, and I don't mean that arrogantly or condescendingly or anything like that, my calling is to be a shepherd. And um, my calling is not to be your buddy, uh, it's not to be even nice to you all the time. That's, that's not what my calling is. My calling is to present the truth to you, biblical truth, in the hopes that I can lead you into a life of truth, a life of holiness, a life of looking more like Jesus uh, every single day that we live, okay? In doing that, sometimes there's very offensive things that come up in the Bible because there's a lot of man-made religion and theology that the Bible doesn't agree with. And so I feel like sometimes I have an advantage over some of you uh, because I wasn't raised in church. So I didn't have a bunch of bad theology, I didn't have any theology really pumped into me, right? And so by the time I got into my 20s when I became a Christian, uh, uh, I heard some pretty good theology. And so today uh, we're gonna talk about some stuff that, that is probably gonna go against. And, and guys, listen, I'm not against denomination and I'm, I'm really happy that some of you were raised in a Christian home. I'm gonna raise my girls in a Christian home, right? But I'm probably going to say some things today, and it's not me, it's James, right? So, you know, one day you can take it up with him, I guess. But uh, we're going to say some things today that will probably fly in the face of some religious things that you've probably thought were true for a long time. And I don't bring this up to be offensive, but I bring it up because there's a huge problem in modern-day Christian theology, especially in the United States, and I just want to address it. And um, so let me recap, and then here in a little bit it'll become clear what I'm talking about, all right? So if you weren't here, and by the way, you should have a notes handout in front of you. You should if you have the Bible app, the YouVersion app. Um, um, there's a, a YouVersion app. If you download that, click on the bottom right button and then click on events. All the notes pop up and all that jazz. Very convenient. Um, James is in the New Testament right after the book of Hebrews. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn there. But chapter one, this is what we talked about. We talked about where our identity should be found, um, kind of what Kyle was singing about today. Chapter two, we talked about faith without works is dead. Which means that if we say we believe in Jesus, but we don't live like Jesus, if we don't treat other people well, if we don't have a relationship with him, we really don't have faith. Because faith without works isn't really faith at all, right? Last week, we asked God to help us uh, with our tongue, right? That to we to control our tongue. So I know you guys did all your homework, that you prayed for God to control your tongue. So you haven't said anything mean this week, you haven't lied, you haven't gossiped, nothing like that, right? And then we asked, <laughs> and then we asked for God to give us wisdom so we can make wise choices, so we can do the right thing and do what God wants us to do. Now this week, this is where we're going to land. At the very end of this chapter, there's a scripture that we're going to end on, and this is what it basically says. To know what is right and to not do that is a sin. To know what is right and to not do it is a sin. That's where we're going to land today, okay? So I'm going to pray And again, uh, part of my preface is I want you to know I don't have an ax to grind. I don't dislike any denominations. In fact, we have our leadership conference coming up. I'm going to have a Baptist minister and a Church of Christ minister that are going to be here, right? We're going to invite them to speak. Pastor Brady from over at New Vision, Pastor David Young from over at North Boulevard are going to be part of our leadership conference. We have good relationships with all denominations, right? All groups of Christians. So I don't have an ax to grind. Um, But when it comes to bad theology, we need to tackle it and we need to address it and we need to talk about it. And, uh, and that's what we're going to do a little bit today, okay? So let me pray. We will dive into chapter four, and we'll see where the Lord takes us, okay? Lord Jesus, God, I love you. God, I thank you, Lord. I pray that you give me wisdom today. I pray, God, that every word that comes out of my mouth honors you, and is the truth, Lord, and that it is directed by you. I pray that you open up all of our eyes and our ears and our understanding, God, to absorb what your word says. Regardless of what we think, God, we wanna know what you think. We wanna know your ways. Father, we pray that you bless every single church in our community. God, we pray that you bless all of the nonprofits. We pray, God, that you bless our city officials and and government. We pray that you bless our police officers and firefighters and sheriff's department. Father, we pray that you bless our, uh, our, our, our government of our nation. We pray, God, that you keep your hand on our country, God, with all the horrible things that have happened in the last couple of days, with all the hatred that has manifested and the awful things that are taking place. Father, your your word says that we are to pray for healing of our land. So God, we pray for healing of our land, of the people of our land, God. We live in a wonderful country, God, but right now there's a lot of division, and we pray, God, that you start to mend that. We love you. We thank you. Be with us today, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're in chapter four, I'm going to jump right in, I'm going to read a little bit and I'll do my best to break it down. What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from cravings that are at war within you? You desire and you don't have, you murder and you covet and you cannot obtain. You fight in war and you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own evil desires. Now, what James is starting off with is he's talking about combativeness or wars, not between believers and unbelievers, but amongst believers. And he says that these struggles that happen amongst believers, they're rooted in the cravings within us. And the word cravings there is where we get the word hedonism, which I believe is the dominant philosophy of our culture right now. The philosophy of hedonism basically says that life is about satisfying self. Well, Corey, that's extreme. Our word of the year two years ago was selfie, right? So we are a society that is hedonistic. We are about satisfying self. Now, what's interesting about that is Jesus point blank addressed this. He said, if you pursue your selfish desires, it's going to choke you. Jesus said that in Luke chapter 8. It's going to kill you if you are only worried about self. Now, here's the problem. This desire is in every single one of us. All of our pre-Christian selves are constantly combating with our Christian selves for domination, right? Pre-Christian quarry is always waging a war against Christian quarry. The old self is trying to come back. And here's the thing about evil influence. Until we die or until Jesus comes back, we're never going to be free of the spiritual battle that is taking place right now. We're always going to be warring against an evil influence. But through God's grace, our evil influence will not get dominion over us, it will not dominate us. So Paul uses this analogy a lot in the New Testament, that we're running a race, right? That this life is a race and that we are to run it at a pace to where we feel like we want to win this race. And if we're going to run this race, if we're going to cross the finish line, we must be constantly, not once a week, not once a lifetime, not every once in a while, we need to be constantly dependent on God's help. We need to be constantly reliant on Him, on Him because the world is going nuts, guys. And our problem, though, all of us, is this is we tend to look in the wrong places. We're all looking for peace, we're looking for love, we're looking for contentment, but it it seems to elude a lot of us because we're looking at these things with selfish desires, with murder, with envy, and with greed. And a lot of you right now are saying, Corey, I've never killed anyone. No, murder in this passage is not referring to literal killing someone. James is saying that when you and I don't get what we want, we hate people. And when we hate people, Jesus says that's the equivalent of murder. So we have murdered people in our hearts. Here's the other side of that though. If we have hatred and jealousy produced by greed and worldliness, that can potentially lead us to actual murder. I had the privilege a couple of, uh, I guess it was last year, Roland Coulson, who comes to this church, a great man of God, he was the uh, uh, the warden at Riverbend Maximum Security Prison. That's where they shot the Green Mile. He was the warden there, right? And so I had the honor last year to go to Riverbend, take a tour, meet the new warden, and then I went to death row and I got to sit there and talk and hang out with death row inmates. Nothing like what you'd expect. Most of these men you would have over to your house for dinner, you'd let them hang out with your... Family, they're, they're not like scary men at all to be around. The majority of those men, I'd say nine out of 10 of them, are men that were pretty decent people, but in one moment of their life, they let their anger or their hatred get the best of them, and they made a really, really terrible decision. And none of them thought they would end up on death row at Riverbend Maximum Security Prison. But listen, guys, none of us are exempt from this. If we are not repentant of our sin, if, we, if our sin goes unchecked, there is no telling what depths we can sink to if we don't get control of those things. And we may never literally kill anyone, but if we hate people, we've done something just as bad in God's eyes. So we need to have this in check. And so this peace and this contentment and this love and this security, that seems to elude a lot of us. The reason why it eludes us is because we never ask God for it. Either we've never asked God for it, or we've asked him with selfish, improper motives. So how do we respond, right? Like, how do we ask God for things? How do we petition God for things? So many of you come up to me and you say, Corey, God never answers my prayers. Well, I'm not God, so I can't tell you exactly why he doesn't answer all your prayers. But I think this gives us a little bit of a snapshot. Whenever we pray, first and foremost, we are to seek God's will. God, what is your will in this situation? Because Jesus said, let your will be done, God, and we're supposed to do that as well. What is your will? We must also be living righteously. We must be living the way Jesus wants us to live. And if we're not living righteously, our prayers better be repentant. We need to be asking God to forgive us of our sin and our rebellion. Here's the thing. We can't expect God to answer our prayers if our motives are selfish and if His will is not being sought after. God will not answer those prayers. So the reason why a lot of our prayers aren't answered is because we're asking with improper motives. So some of you in this room, a lot of you in this room, have had loved ones that have passed away, right? Actually, I'm gonna go to the hospital after this service. I gotta go see someone. 16-year-old kid that's in the hospital at Vanderbilt. And so there's a lot of times in times when we're praying for healing, that God doesn't do exactly what we want God to do. So do we believe in healing? Yes. God's still the great physician. I still pray. I prayed for a woman with breast cancer last night near, and I pray with all of my belief and all of my passion that God is going to heal her. But sometimes... God does not do what I want him to do. So we must pray that his will be done. God, whatever your will is in this woman's life, let that be done. And we must trust, regardless of what happens, that God knows better than us. If you're in here and you're not a Christian, you can ask any Christian in this room this. One of the hardest lessons to learn as a Christian is this, that God's plans aren't always the same as ours. Sometimes they're different, right? And we don't always understand that. Okay? So far, so good. And then James calls us adulteresses. Here we go. (laughs) Adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? So whoever wants to be the world's friend becomes God's enemy. Or do you think it's without reason that the Scripture says that the Spirit who lives in us yearns jealously? But He gives greater grace. Therefore, God says, God resists the proud gives grace to the humble. So James kind of shows this frustration a little bit, right? Calls us adulteresses. He's not talking about marital infidelity. That's not what he's referring to. He's referring to the fact that Christians are to be married to God, but we've cheated on God with a lot of things in the world, right? That's what he's talking about. So what does world mean? If you come to church, we say worldly, and we don't want to be a part of the world, things like that. World is not planet earth, right? You don't really have any choice in that matter. World isn't the people of earth. World is the system. It's the system of values held by people that don't honor God. And the world is a society that is severed from God and pursuing its own wants and agendas. That is the world that we are to not be a part of. And so what James is saying is, he's saying we cannot walk two directions simultaneously. If we have friendship with the system of the world, then we have hostility towards God and His system. And this seems to be a point that modern day American Christianity has not quite embraced. Here's what a lot of people say to me. Corey, I'm saved. God has saved me. Well, if we've been touched by God, we're not going to remain the same. Our system paradigm shifts when we are saved by God because a relationship with God changes us. And if we haven't been changed, we're probably not saved. It's gonna get so much worse here in about (laughs) 20 minutes, guys. And so Jesus said this, he goes, no man can have two masters. If we subscribe to the world's systems, we're enemies of God. And so Jesus said, you have to choose who you serve because just like the cheesy video said, right? Like you can't be married to this man when you're sleeping with all these other men. You're not giving him your pure allegiance. And it's the same thing that we do to God. So God is jealous of us. When the church was really small, about 75 people, I remember a woman raised her hand. I was teaching this. She raised her hand and she goes, I don't think God's jealous. And I was like, well, I don't think this is a classroom. And I probably shouldn't have said that, right? That was rude. But I, but I had to explain to her what jealous in this context meant. What jealous in this context meant was that if you're married and your wife prefers to talk to another man more than you, that should bother you. That should be something that upsets you. And that's how God feels about us. He wants our undivided attention. And so when we're dabbling in things that he doesn't like, he gets jealous of that. So what should we do as Christians? This yellow part right here, a very Christian thing to write, but let me explain it. And these are important words. They're very Christian words, but very important words. Justification, means that Jesus Christ has died for our sins and has stood in our place, right? He has justified us, represented us, okay? If we have been justified, justification beckons sanctification, which means once we acknowledge that Jesus has died for our sins, we are called to live a separated life for Him, that we are to be set apart for God's purpose. That's sanctification. And the only way sanctification happens is if we have been purified, washed clean. So justification beckons sanctification, and the only way we are sanctified is we are purified. We are washed clean. This is what happens. And when we have become believers in Jesus, there are high demands on us. There are requirements of us. There is also heavy grace for us. But the way we receive grace is we must be humble because God pushes away from arrogant people and he draws humble people close to him. To be arrogant or to be prideful means that we turn our heart from God and say, we can do it. We can do it on our own. God, thank you, but no thank you. I got it. That's prideful. That's arrogant. Humility is exactly the opposite. It's saying that without God, I am utterly lost. And even when we fall into times of temporary sliding away from God, right, where we're not living the way we should, backsliding is what they call that, humility recognizes that we need to ask God to forgive us of that. And then we need to depend on God for his salvation and for grace in those moments that we understand that. So what are we to do? Here's what we're not to do until Jesus comes back or we die and go meet him, right? We're not to live lives that are dominated by materialism. We're not to live lives that are in search of prestige or selfish desires or a deliberate denial and forgetfulness of God's principles, that's not the way we're intended to live. We're intended to be humble, to be dependent on Him, to be constantly growing closer to Him, and that when we make mistakes, we're quick to ask for forgiveness, right? Quick to ask for forgiveness. That leads us to the next part. Therefore, James says, submit to God, but resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners. Purify your hearts, double-minded people. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Your laughter must change to mourning and your joy to sorrow. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Don't criticize one another, brothers. He who criticizes a brother or judges his brother criticizes the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, you're a judge. There is one lawgiver and one judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So let's say for argument's sake, guys, all of us in this room, I don't know, there's a thousand people in this room or something like however many people in this room, all of us in this room, right, we acknowledge right now that we have not lived the way we should as Christians. And so all of us right now say we have not been what God has wanted us to be. So what do we do about that? Once we realize that we have cheated on God, right, that we've given the world more of our attention, right, what do we do? The first thing we do is we submit to God. We realize that God is greater than us, that God deserves our honor and God deserves our reverence. A huge problem with modern day Christian culture is we do not have an honor and reverence for God the way we should. The second thing we need to do is we need to resist the devil. This means that we stand firm on our beliefs. This means that we refuse to give in to the impulse of sin. What is sin? The only way to know what sin is, is to break open the Bible and read it. I know that's still like a novel concept for Christianity, right? But like, we have to read this thing. God gave us an instruction manual for a reason. And so when we read it, it identifies what sin is and we know what to turn away from and we know how easily it is to fall into that sin. We must also take steps to flee immorality. Guys, again, don't let your brains explode on the person next to you. But if you struggle with getting drunk, don't go to bars If you struggle with porn, leave your laptop at the office. If you struggle with flirting with the woman next to you in the cubicle, move to another cubicle. Do whatever you have to do to get away from the thing that is tempting you to sin. That's not being a coward, that's being smart. If I'm constantly tempted by these things, I don't wanna be around these things. The Bible says run away from it, flee from immorality. That's what the Bible says. We must also be proactive in our faith. Here's what God does. James says that if we draw near to God, he draws near to us. So if we take a step towards him, God takes a step towards us, right? It's like a 401k plan or something, right? You invest 1,000, your company invests 1,000. That's what you do. Not that I have one, but anyways. So when we draw closer to him, he draws closer to us. But in order to draw closer to God, James says you gotta cleanse your hands and you gotta purify your hearts. What does that mean? You have to ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins. There are these things that are blocking you guys drawing closer to each other, and that is sin, unrepentant sin, and sinful behavior, and we must remove that. We must ask God to forgive us of that. Now, here's where we start going down the slope a little bit. We live in a time that celebrates and laughs at sinful behavior. When James says you need to turn your laughing to mourning, he doesn't, he's not meaning that like being a Christian is a depressing thing. That's not what he means. What he means is we need to stop laughing off sin and we need to pray that sin breaks our heart and makes us mourn and weep. So I was doing a leadership conference up in Chicago in 2007 one time, teaching at this leadership thing for a couple of days. And I'm up at this leadership thing and, and, and it was kind of a, a very conservative, uh, a bunch of, of, of Christians, right? The church wasn't growing very well, and they just, that's why they brought me in to kind of like amp everyone up. And so I showed a clip in 2007. I don't know if you remember this or not. In 2007, that's when Brokeback Mountain came out, right? All the Christians were like, Jesus should be coming back in nine minutes, right? So <laughs> I showed a trailer. I showed a trailer for that movie, for Brokeback Mountain, and the audience, <gasps> gasping, right? Oh my gosh, everything's falling apart. And then I said, man, isn't that crazy? Like, wow, this is coming out. That's going to be an Oscar-nominated movie. Like, it's wow, can you, can you believe this? And, went, oh! and I said, you know what's funny, though? You guys are so appalled by this. You know the number one show amongst Christians in 2007 was Desperate Housewives? A show about a married woman who's sleeping with a 17-year-old gardener. And I said, wow, isn't it funny how you guys laugh about that because you're comfortable with that sin? So that's okay. It's good entertainment. But that thing up there, that is evil. Nowadays, I would have used Game of Thrones as my analogy, but that's offensive, so I'm not going to do that right now. So, (laughs) but what we do is as long as it's funny, we're okay to laugh at it because, you know, it's funny. It doesn't matter that it's sin. It doesn't matter that it's adultery. It doesn't matter that it's nudity. It doesn't matter that it's vulgarity. It's funny. It's entertaining. It's action-packed. So we laugh at it. It's fun to us. And James says that is a problem. That is a problem. That needs to bother us that people are living contrary to the way that God wants us to live. This is not complicated. This is not complicated. So we live in a Christian culture right now that's obsessed with praying against shame and guilt. Corey, pray for my shame and guilt. Pray for my shame and guilt. And I'm like, how about I pray for that sin that you're engaging in? And when that is forgiven and removed, the shame and guilt will go with it. We're so busy focused on the symptoms... We're so busy focused on the symptoms that we're not dealing with the true problem. And listen, guys, you are not meant to live in shame and guilt. That is not the way God wants you to live. But shame and guilt can be wonderful catalysts for God to get you to repent. Sometimes the reason why it hurts when you touch a stove is God doesn't want your fingers to burn off, right? So there's pain involved with that. Shame and guilt are similar. They are ways to get us to turn around, and those are good things sometimes. So when we respond, and when the Holy Spirit is guiding us, we not only see the fact that there's a lot of human depravity, we see that God is gracious with us, and He loves us. And those that will humble themselves and acknowledge that we have lived in rebellion to God, God doesn't just forgive them, He lifts them up. He gives us the power and the wisdom to live the best life we can possibly live right now in preparation for a fantastic eternity. But the key to that is humility. We must be humble. And so James says, you guys just keep tearing each other down. When we are forgiven of our pride, we should show grace to others like God has shown grace to us. And Christians that have a critical spirit, right? Half glass is always half full. Everything's always bad, right? Christians who have a critical spirit misrepresent the law of love. What in the heck is that? That is the golden rule. Treat other people like you want to be treated. And when we criticize people constantly, we are acting as judge, God, over the law. So we are to treat other people as we want to be treated. We're not to pick and choose whom we love. We are called to love everyone, as Jesus says, even our enemies, okay? Now here we, here we go, last part. "'Come now, you who say, "'Today or tomorrow we will travel to such and such a city "'and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. "'You don't even know what tomorrow will bring, "'what your life will be, "'for you are like smoke "'that appears for a little while "'and then you vanish. "'Instead you should say,' "'Listen to this, "'If the Lord wills, we will live "'and do this or that. "'But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So it is a sin for the person who knows to do what is good and does not do it. Okay. So James warns people who become self-sufficient apart from God, right? If you think you can do it on your own, it's foolish. These kinds of people, listen, this is where, we, this is where we're going to start going downhill. These are people that know who the real God is, but don't live like they know who the real God is. This is called the Christian atheist. Someone that knows there's a God, they even know the truth about God, but they don't live in any form or fashion like they have a relationship with God. And listen, there's about 3,000 people roughly that come to this church in our Woodbury church. It's a lot of people. And there's a lot of people in our church, I hate to say it, many people in this room right now who know who God is, but don't live with any sense of conviction Or urgency to have any kind of relationship with him. This is a problem. This is a salvific heaven or hell, all chips pushed in problem. This is an issue. And our problem is, is we think we have tomorrow to deal with it. Now, so many people in this room right now have a false sense of security and we live arrogantly or we live apathetically not understanding that this life can end at any moment. And when it does end, whether you've been given 16 years or 65 years or 120 years, we will be held accountable for what we had. Five funerals this church has done in three months, we're doing our fifth one Monday, Dave has to do it. And it's for a 27 year old that was innocently sitting at a stop sign and a car hit her and took her life. Every person has an appointed time. And we, we live like we're going to live forever. And James says, this life is uncertain. This life is brief. It's like smoke that comes out and vanishes. We are not promised longevity. You are not promised tomorrow. So we must live in the present. We must live right now, completely dependent on Jesus Christ. But we have a culture that doesn't do that. Instead of a flippant and careless view of this life and a careless view of our relationship with God, we are to seek God's counsel in every corner of our life. God, where do you want me to work? God, who do you want me to marry? God, where do you want me to live? God, where do you want me to go to church? What do you want, God? I want to be in your will. So we must be connected to Christ through prayer and through study So we can build our plans around his plans, not ask him to build his plans around ours. That is the pinnacle and the climax of human arrogance. Hey, God, I'm doing this. Will you jump on board? How dare we? And we do it all the time. We make our plans and then we say, hey, God, can you stamp this? Okay, good. Not asking what he wants to do. Not asking what he wants for us. And so, the conclusion of this chapter is James looks at them, and he says, it's a sin. You know what's right. You know what's right, and to know what's right and to not do what is right is wrong. That is wrong. This is called the sin of omission. The sin of commission means that you know to do something, and and you blatantly do something wrong, right? I should not steal, but I'm stealing. That's the sin of commission, the sin of omission is I know I'm supposed to do something, but I'm blatantly not doing it. And here's the thing we are held accountable, not just for knowing the truth, but for doing the truth. And we have created a Christian culture where we say, I know Jesus, that's fantastic. Are you living it? Are you doing it? So let's go there, guys. Let's go down this road. To be a Christian is not just in word. Well, Corey, I know I'm saved, right? I use this analogy all the time. You guys are probably so sick of it. Corey, I know I'm saved. I'm addicted to this. I do this. I treat people awful. I lie, steal, cheat, all these things. But I know I'm saved. You do? Salvation is not found in what I say I am. Freak, I can walk around and say I'm a unicorn, right? But until I have hooves and a big thing coming out of my head, I'm a human being. I can say it all day long, but that doesn't make it so. And I know we're not saved by our works, I know that. But our works give evidence of our salvation. That is the Bible. So logically, what that means is if you say you're saved, I should be able to see that in your life. Am I the judge of your salvation? No, 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 no. But salvation, according to the book, right, the good book the inspired word of God, salvation is quantifiable. But here's the thing, everyone wants just to argue if they they can lose it or not. This is the big argument in Christianity, can we lose our salvation? Here's the thing, guys, if your spouse walks up to you every week and says, can we get divorced? There's a huge problem with your marriage. If you're constantly asking me if you can lose your salvation, I'm stepping back saying, why do you keep asking me that? If you're living for Jesus Christ, you don't have to worry about that question. So I'm not concerned if you can lose your salvation or not. I'm concerned if you are displaying the Christ that you claim to be in you. That's what I'm worried about. But we have created a culture that thinks if we pray one time when we're 14 years old in our grandmother's church, we're good. And that is a lie. That is not a biblical evidence of your faith. Now, I used to think I was crazy. Listen, I wasn't raised in church, and I was, when I did get saved, I was saved in a charismatic church, right? And so I started studying theology. I started meeting a lot of people in town who are Christians, and a lot of the people in this town, because of the culture that we've created, especially in the South, is, well, I know I'm saved, right? You know, I, I said this prayer. I did this thing. And I'm like, I don't think that's biblically supported. And I started hearing this term, the sinner's prayer. Well, we all prayed, prayed the sinner's prayer, right? I was at a funeral one time. My friend died. Guy said, come to the front. I repeated after him, I'm good, and I'm like, that's not, that's not okay, I don't, I don't see that in this book. But that's a very predominant thought in our culture. So I thought I was insane, right? I maybe thought there was something wrong with me. And then I started studying it. And there was a man, a Southern Baptist pastor, that wrote this, and I'm gonna read it to you. I have seen the sinner's prayer abused across the contemporary Christian landscape as people pray the prayer apart from a biblical understanding of the gospel or on multiple occasions to ensure their salvation or with ever or without even counting the cost of following Christ, I have experienced this abuse in my own life, where people have been called upon to pray the prayer and raise their hand in ways that, despite good intentions, were theologically man-centered and practically manipulative. Guys, I've been to funerals, and i got more. I've been to funerals where there is a, a, a body of a teenager in a casket, and a pastor will get up there and say, "Hey, who doesn't want to go to hell?" I do want to go to hell, you know, like, like, so all these kids raise their hand. Hey, repeat after me. I accept the Lord Jesus Christ is my savior. And they all repeat it. And they go, look, 200 people saved. There we go. Rock and roll. Right. And no follow. That is manipulative. That is manipulative. He goes on. And I've seen this abuse in the lives of many people I pastor who pray the sinner's prayer at a point in their life only to realize later that they're not truly saved. I have cautions about potential abuses associated with the sinner's prayer. Here's where I really want you to pay attention. Assurance of salvation is not found in a prayer we prayed or a decision we made however many years ago as much as it is found in trusting in the sacrifice Christ made for us, experiencing the Spirit of Christ in us, obeying the commands of Christ to us, and expressing the love of Christ to others. I want to be careful not to give a person blanket assurance regarding their eternal destiny apart from the fruit of biblical faith, repentance, obedience, and love. A Baptist theologian named David Platt, who wrote a book called Radical, wrote that and spoke at the Southern Baptist Church Convention. Listen, I don't dislike the Southern Baptist Convention. I love them. In fact, New Vision, I have Pastor Brady speaking here, and David Platt's brother works at that church, Right? and so we have great relationship. All those things are fine. I don't have an ax to grind on that. My problem is this. There is many, There are many of you in this room who, in my opinion, have a false sense of assurance and a false sense of security that everything's okay, but there is no demonstration of Jesus Christ in your life. And whether you can lose it, or not lose it, I'm not concerned about, but I'm greatly concerned if one says with their mouth, I'm a Christian, but nothing, no fruit of the Spirit, no evidence of their faith is demonstrated in their life. That bothers me. It bothers me because I don't think you have the kind of relationship with God that you think you have. So I leave you with this. Do I have all the answers? No, but I leave you with this. For someone to know what is right, And not do what is right is a sin. And I know this, no sin will enter into the kingdom of heaven. And I know what some of you theologians are thinking right now, right? Romans 10, right? It says, if you confess with your mouth, you're saved. Read a little bit further. And if you believe in your heart, it will produce righteousness. You can confess with your mouth all day long, all day long. But if you truly believe in your heart, it will produce righteousness. It will produce goodness. It will produce evidence that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And if there is no evidence of that, there is a problem. There is a disconnect. I know some of you don't like that. I know some of you weren't raised to believe that you have to have a genuine day-to-day relationship with Jesus, and I'm really, really sorry because you weren't taught good theology. I know some of you are going to get mad at me, and I, some of, I know some of you will send me things well, my great-grandmother taught me this. That's fantastic. The Bible teaches this. I know I'm gonna get some of that. It is not my job to be your friend. One day I will have to stand in front of Christ Jesus and he will say, Corey, I gave you 3,000 people to shepherd in 2017. What did you do with them? And if you get mad at me right now and you leave this church and don't speak to me again, but eventually this sinks in, what I just taught you today, you're not gonna hold it against me in heaven, I don't believe Oh, Corey, I wish you wouldn't have taught that. Pfft, we're skateboarding on streets of gold. Shut up, right? <laughs> Except in heaven, you say be quiet. <laughs> With all humility and, and the, utmost, the utmost humility I can muster, uh, my life has been dedicated uh, To this because God has called me to do so. And I care about you, and I love you, and I lose sleep at night. God woke me up at three o'clock in the morning last night because I was so bothered that so many of you, so many of you that I love and I care for, your mouths are close to God, but your hearts are extremely far away. And God doesn't necessarily want your mouth. He wants your heart and I worry about some of you. I worry about some of you greatly. Would you bow your heads with me? Here's the beauty, guys. As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, here's here's the beauty of all this. If you have lived in rebellion to God, if you know the truth and you have not done what is right, if you've been in that camp, if you've made those decisions, if you've slipped away from God, you've done things wrong and you know that they're wrong, here's the beauty of Jesus Christ. If you were to genuinely ask God to forgive you today and take steps to move away from that sin, it says in the Old Testament that God removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. It says that God casts our sin into the deep sea. Do you know that if you ask God to forgive you right now, that one day when we do get in front of the throne of judgment and we stand before God, if you live a life that is repentant of your sin, you will get up there and he will say, I don't see anything wrong with you. All those things will be erased. They will be eradicated. They will be gone. That's how gracious, that's how loving God is. But we have to stop cheating on God. If we know what is right, we need to do what is right. Because if we're not, we're in opposition. We've become God's enemy. I beg you, I implore you, I'll get on my knees and and, 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 and shout at you, whatever you want me to do, please, 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 do not leave this room. I know you have things to do. I know you got places to be. I know you have friends to see. I know all that. I know. It can wait 10 minutes. Take the time to ask God to search your heart. Ask Him to shine a light on the depths of your soul to expose what needs to be forgiven, what needs to be brought out and healed and fixed. Whatever that is, be humble. Humble yourselves and say, God, I have not been everything you want me to be, but I want to. And let him help us. It would be a waste of our time together if you didn't leave this room changed and forgiven and pure and white There are people up here at the front who will pray with you. There's communion all the way around you to where we can get that juice and we can get that bread and we can remember that Jesus Christ died for us even while we were sinners. That he died for our sins, that he loves us. Please do not leave this place. Please do not leave this place with a careless faith, with a flippant faith. As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I wish I could hug every one of you. I love you so much. It is never my intention to beat you up. And it is never my intention to degrade or criticize or be a jerk or take the role of judge. That is not my goal. I love you, I love you, and I wanna be with you forever. Forever and ever and ever and ever in heaven. I wanna be with all of you but we have got to give our full allegiance to the Lord. Father, God, we love you. I I pray, Father, Lord, that your Holy Spirit shines a light on every single heart in this room. Lord, that whatever is in us that you don't want in us, God, that that you would pull it out, that we would ask for you to forgive us, that we would take the steps to move away from our sin, that we would, rededicate ourselves to you, God, that we would find passion for you again, that we would be devoted to you, God. Lord, I don't know if we can lose our salvation or not, God, but I don't care. My, my, I just want to be close to you. I want us to be walking with you, God. I want us to have an active relationship with you, God. Heal us, help us, forgive us, Lord. And thank you for your love for us, God. Bless my brothers and sisters and bless any non-believers who may be in here. God, I pray, Lord, that they just felt comfortable today and that they'll come back. We thank you, God. and It's in your name that we pray. In Jesus' name, I love you guys so much. I'll see you next week.